Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Jesus and His People, with a message entitled, Entering the Holy Place. So let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verses 25 to 33, as we join Dr. Neufeld now. One of the great privileges of every believer is his or her access to the throne room of God. You know, Francois Fenelon, writing in the 17th century, wrote these words on prayer. Tell God all that is in your heart. Tell him your troubles, that he may comfort you. Tell him your joys, that he may sober them. Tell him your longings, that he may purify them. Tell him your dislikes, that he may help you conquer them. Tell him your temptations, that he may shield you from them. Show him the wounds of your heart, that he may heal them. Lay bare your indifference to good, your depraved taste for evil, your instability. Tell him how self-love makes you unjust to others, how vanity tempts you to be insincere, how pride disguises you of yourself to others. Blessed are they who attain such familiar, unreserved intercourse with God. Yes, indeed. What a privilege it is to be invited into the experience of intimacy with a father. It's one of the great privileges of the gospel. But lest we think it's simply a trivial thing, let me give you a lesson from history. The Old Testament teaches us that God is holy and we're not, and that entering into his presence is a privilege not easily given. On the day that God gave the Ten Commandments, Israel was told if anyone came near Mount Sinai, they would instantly die. When the place of worship, that is the tabernacle, was constructed, it contained a center for meeting with God called the Holy of Holies. But it was separated by a thick curtain, and the word was given, if anyone enters into it, they will die. In fact, only the high priest was allowed in, and that but once a year. He would enter with a bowl of blood and would enter with trembling, sprinkling the blood onto the center of the Ark of the Covenant, a place called the mercy seat. If the place was not sanctified with the blood of atonement, the mercy seat would become a judgment seat, and the high priest would die. You know, in the days of King David, as the Ark of God was being brought into Jerusalem on a cart being pulled by a pair of oxen, And when the oxen stumbled and the cart was rocked, one man whose name was Uzzah put out his hand to steady the ark, and God killed him for his irreverent act. What's the lesson? God is not to be approached lightly. As Hebrews 12, 29 reminds us, our God is a consuming fire. On the night before the crucifixion of Jesus, Jesus told his disciples that his death would open up a new avenue to God, one that the human race had never known before. We're studying now John 16, 25 to 33. And as we read, I want you to notice that the emphasis on the teaching of Jesus is centered on the Father. Eight times in these nine verses, he directly mentions the Father, and one time he says, God, there he's referring also to the Father. What Jesus is doing here is urging his disciples on that after the cross, a new way would be opened to the Father. Remember that Matthew records in Matthew 27, 51, that at the very moment that Jesus cried out with a loud voice on the cross and then yielded up his spirit, that as he died, at that moment, the thick curtain hiding the Holy of Holies from the holy place in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. In this way, the Holy Spirit was showing that access into the holy place had now opened up to all the followers of Jesus. 
And later on, reflecting on that, the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10.22 would urge believers that we should enter into the holy place, not with the blood of bulls and goats, as on the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, but now by the blood of Jesus, with his blood, we will not be struck down. So then, what does the cross of Jesus accomplish for us? Well, first, it comes with an invitation. Let us draw near to the Father with confidence. And that's the invitation from the cross. So let's start our reading, John 16, 25. Jesus is speaking. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. Well, the word translated here is figure of speech. Well, it's a, it's a hard word to translate. And Jesus is saying that up till this point, he's been speaking with his disciples in a way that's been deliberately obscure. Uh, we do know that a part of the reason for that was the disciples were slow to understand what he's talking about. You know, for instance, in Matthew 16, he told them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And this then sets them off in a discussion as to whether Jesus might be angry with them because they forgot to bring bread along. Well, on another occasion, they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. That's recorded in Mark 9. And he tells them not to tell anyone until he is risen from the dead. And that again sets them off with a heated discussion about what dead actually meant. See, quite often the disciples were, well, they didn't seem like the sharpest tools in the shed. But there are other times when you can understand their confusion. In John 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. So what did that mean? Or in John 4, he promises that anyone who believes in him, rivers of living water will flow from them and they will never be thirsty again. Sounds good, but how do you understand that? In John 6, he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. Hard to know how to take that. Then in John 11, he says he's the door and the gate to the sheep. He simply goes on and on in a very real way. You can understand how both exciting and, and mysterious and even confusing Jesus must have seemed to them. But now a new day is coming when the confusion is going to be cleared up and he's going to speak to them plainly. From now on, he says, you'll not misunderstand me again. So let's read John 16, 26a. In that day, you will ask in my name. So I want you to imagine how breathtaking that promise is. All over the world, there are people who simply can't fathom this. They simply can't believe they can be ushered into the throne room of God. And so they go to a priest or to a pastor who's going to go to God for them. Well, it's because they feel unworthy. Surely the priest is worthy. Others go to Mary, who's going to speak to Jesus on their behalf. Others pray to a saint. Still others perform rituals, hoping that the ritual will somehow accomplish what they know they can't. They know that they can't enter into the presence of holiness. And there's something profoundly true about that attitude. Some people rightly understand that there is a barrier between them and God. They're right in this. That is, until Jesus came and opened up a way. And as we've been studying John 16, we've noticed what Jesus has told us. Verse 23 and 24. He said that you can ask the Father of anything in my name. And now he repeats it in verse 26. He says, you have received authority from me to enter into the Father's presence. Just go. He awaits you. Sounds so much like Hebrews 10:22. Let us draw near, it says. Do it. And as you do it, Do it in full assurance of faith. Know that Jesus, who is crucified for you, urges us into the Father's direct presence. 
So let's read the passage, verse 26 again, and we'll continue to read all the way through to verse 28. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Do you know that you're loved by the Father? According to this verse, if you love Christ and you believe in him, you have acceptance and the love of the Father. The Father's inviting you to come to him and bring your requests, and you'll find his love. I want you to notice the condition. Jesus is not saying that anyone can enter into the Father's presence and find his love. He's saying it's only for those who love him and believe that he came from God. See, rather than seeing these as two separate conditions, they're actually one. The reason the disciples love Jesus, and as Christ has said to them before, obey his commands, it's because they believe that he came from God. Now look again at verse 28. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. So I want you to notice that belief in Jesus includes four things. First, it believes that he came from the Father, which is a belief in his eternal deity. He's always existed, as John 1.1 says, as both with God and is God. Second, true faith believes that Jesus came into the world, which is the belief in the incarnation. As John 1 teaches us, the word became flesh, that Jesus is both fully God and fully man. Thirdly, that he left the world in that he died on the cross for our sins and was raised from the dead and has ascended into heaven. It is a trust in what was accomplished for us on his cross. And fourthly, going to the Father indicates a belief that he is right now seated at the right hand of the Father, that he is Lord to whom all must bow, every knee, every tongue will one day confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this kind of faith produces love for Christ. And where such faith exists, an open door is offered to God. Now, if you believe that, go, go, go into the Holy of Holies. Go and do not hold back. Ricardo wrote, Thank you and all the men and women of Back to the Bible Canada for the great work you do. You continue to inspire my spiritual growth, and I'm grateful God has given me the opportunity to contribute. All praise and glory to God. Ricardo, thank you. Friends like you make this Bible teaching ministry possible. Has your life been impacted by the Word of God and perhaps the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada? Well, with your financial contribution or by becoming a monthly partner through our 1119 Fellowship, we can continue to make Bible teaching you can trust accessible to our nation. If you'd like to be part of the ministry of Back to the Bible Canada, laugh again or in doubt, just give us a call at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. I've often wondered why we, including myself, are often afraid to enter into the Father's presence. Why don't we pray more? I don't claim to have all the answers, but let me suggest two barriers to prayer. Barrier number one, bad theology. We don't know how welcome we actually are. And barrier number two is guilt feelings. 
We're not yet training our conscience to believe that Christ has borne our guilt and it is removed. We view God like we viewed our moms and dads. You know, when they got mad at us, we waited several days before we talked to them again. We do this with God or we avoid him entirely because we're not sure we're always welcome. Listen, has God's wrath been poured out onto Christ or not? Have you been cleansed or not? Does God still hold sins against you or not? But you say, yeah, but I feel guilty. Good. Go claim 1 John 1, 9. And then refresh yourself with 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. How many of you know that James 4, verse 2 tells us that there are many things that God has withheld from us in our lives simply because we have not asked him. Until we ask, God will not respond. He wants relationship with us. How many of us know what resources might be ours if we simply came into his throne room? And it's all there if we but come. And so draw near with confidence. Go, says Jesus, enter the throne room of God. So having told us to go boldly, the disciples now respond. So I'm reading John 16, 29 to 30. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. I love what Don Carson says about this statement. He says, no misunderstanding is more pathetic than that which thinks it no longer exists. Well, I think Carson's right. The disciples don't fully understand, even though they think they do. But on the other hand, the disciples have advanced in their knowledge. They've come to know some things, things that they didn't know before. The great revelation they have come upon is that he needs no one to question him, that he already knows the questions even before they've uttered them. That's no small thing. Uh, Because the disciples were Jewish, they were quite clear about what that means. Psalm 139, 1-4. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. See, the Old Testament makes it quite plain that omniscience, that is the theological word for it, that is that God knows all things, that omniscience is what we call a non-communicable attribute. In other words, it's an attribute of God that's not shared by anyone else. Only God is omniscient. The angels and the demons aren't. No human being possesses knowledge about all things at all times. God is omniscient. And then taking the words of Psalm 139, before a word is on my tongue, knowledge that is ascribed to God alone, they now ascribe to Jesus. They have come to see he's not just a prophet. He's not just a miracle worker. They've come to see him as the son of God. You know, every once in a while, I will be asked just how much faith does a person need to be saved? And the answer is you need to believe in Jesus. Uh, Not the Jesus of your imagination, but the Jesus who is the son of God and God the son. Sometimes I'll hear someone say, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I just don't believe he's God. Well, hear me. If you don't believe Jesus is God, don't try fool yourself by saying you believe he's the Son of God. See, I have a son. I'm finite. I'm fallible. I'm human. So is my son. That's because he's begotten of me. He's a finite, fallible human being begotten of his earthly father. 
God the Father has a Son begotten of him. And since God is the eternal, infinite God, the Son must also be the eternal, infinite God. If he's not, then he's just a created being, not the Son. Either Jesus is God or he's not the Son. Failure to worship Jesus as God is a failure to believe in him. And this the disciples believed, and because they believed, and only because they believed, they were welcome before the Father. See, we enter the Holy of Holies through the curtain of his flesh, through Jesus and him alone. Without faith in Christ, there is no access to the Father. Indeed, the curtain remains. And I know there are religions in this world that have said some good and even insightful things about God. But access to all is denied because all have sinned. Christ alone opens access. The question, the great searching question, who is Christ and do you believe? Now in verses 31 to 32, Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. See, Jesus knows that the disciples have advanced in their faith, but he also knows that his crucifixion is going to frighten them, and they're going to scatter. In other words, their faith has not yet been perfected. Persecution and trouble will cause them to quickly doubt. And so we're left again with a question. How much faith do you need to enter through the curtain into the Holy of Holies? And the answer here is that even this imperfect faith is enough. We've said we enter into the Holy of Holies by believing in Christ. And so we now add, we may do so even when we have failed. You see, the disciples failed, and in fear they ran and abandoned Jesus. But such failure was not unforgivable. And Jesus is quick to add that he is never alone. Of course, we know that Jesus on the cross did say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But we also know that Isaiah the prophet said, it pleased the Lord to cause him to suffer. Something amazing happened on the cross. The father did pour out his wrath on the son, but even so, the father was pleased in the son, for the son obeyed him in all things. So even while the disciples abandoned Jesus, and he was abandoned by the father, yet the son never once stopped being the object of the father's delight. So in that sense, he was never alone. I thought I'd try to give an illustration of that, but I realized there really are no illustrations in the human realm of that. It's simply unique to God. But Jesus said these things so that the disciples, still frightened and weak in faith, wouldn't despair. Jesus was not alone. And now come these comforting words, verse 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And we've been talking about prayer and access to the Father. And also from Hebrews 10, we've noticed that we've been invited to draw near with confidence through the curtain that is his flesh. Now adding these words, holding fast our confession of hope. So what is the hope that Jesus has given us? And the answer is, he gives us his peace. When Jesus said that he told them all these things so that they would have peace, he meant that they would know that all things, even their fear and their running away in the hour of trial, that all these things were already orchestrated by God. Even Peter's denial of Christ, that also was orchestrated by God. So be at peace. You see what he's saying? Peace doesn't mean that we're free from trouble. Rather, it means we have an assurance that God is in control, and that provides us with an inner calmness. Even when everything else is chaotic and turbulent, 
God is in control. Then comes the last line in verse 33. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Please notice what Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, take heart, you have overcome the world, for they hadn't. He says, take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, if an Olympic gold medal bobsled racer were to say to you, before you go down the track, take heart, I did it, so you can as well. Well, you might not find that a comfort at all. You might even take it with a sense of hopelessness. You're not him. How can you make it? But Jesus only said, take heart, I have overcome the world. So that phrase, take heart, well, that can be translated as be of good courage. Don't be intimidated. Be gutsy because I've defeated the world. And the good news is this. He defeated the world on our behalf. His victory over this world is counted to our account. And so even though our faith may be small, even though we're painfully reminded of our failures and sins, and the memory of these things may still haunt us to some degree, take heart. Jesus conquered the world on your behalf, and it's his track record that speaks for you. We can be assured that the curtain that has sealed off the Holy of Holies from us has been torn asunder. The frown of God has been replaced with the welcoming smile of God. Our advocate has not only opened a way, his opening is given as we now see the outstretched hands of the Father inviting us to come. Are you using that privilege? Are you going to the Father? Are you asking for all things? Do so. Christ has made it possible. Thanks, John. You know, I've got to ask you this. Is there a reason or, or perhaps a remedy for those believers who really don't have an authentic prayer life? Well, I, you know, I, Ben, I remember my mom. She, uh, when people would ask her if she believes in Christ, she would answer, I pray to him. <laughs> and, you know, for her, that is her faith life, you know, that um, she was constantly before uh, her Lord and Savior, Jesus, and she was pouring out her heart to him. And why else would she do that? But she believed in him. She trusted him. So, you know, we might want to look at our own lives and say, have I recognized that everything that I have in life or need in life comes from his hands? What else can I do but be before him and uh and, and commune with him. So, yeah, I think that uh, prayer life and real faith are intimately connected. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Jesus and His People, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Advent season is a very special time of year, but it sometimes gets lost in the bright lights of the Christmas season. While this month, join Dr. John Newfeld and special musical guest Brian Dirksen, the Arias, and the Pilkey sisters as he walks us through the weeks of Advent, preparing our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth with a very special video presentation entitled An Advent Celebration. Preparation takes practice, readiness, waiting, and allowing God to go beyond our expectations to fulfill His will in our lives. An Advent celebration can be viewed online at backtothebible.ca or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And together, let's pray for opportunities to be a messenger of joy, 
sharing trustworthy Bible teaching that brings good news and great joy. To know more or to make a gift to support the ministry this season, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.